Your continued narrow-minded refusal to believe in over the hill is possibly costing us a better life, you know. Over the hill, my ass. Well, when do we start looking for it again? As soon as I get my heart started. I mean, let's stop I know what you mean. Over the hill where the deer and the antelope play, and it's warm and clean, and we can relax and have fun. And then they grow food right out of the ground. How do you like that pipe dream? It's called farming. Oh, I believe you. And they also have a great crop of clothes and guns and gorgeous chicks. And now tell me how you saw the whole wonderful thing with your baby blues. Never said I saw it. I said I heard about it. And from who? From whom? And you know from whom. And whom the hell's gonna believe a police dog? Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. I'm Rick. I'm Julia. And today we are watching 1975's A Boy and His Dog. It was directed by L.Q. Jones, written by L.Q. Jones, with the original novel being written by Harlan Ellison. It stars Don Johnson as Vic, Jason Robards as Lou Craddock, and Suzanne Benton as Quilla June Holmes, featuring the voice of Tim McIntyre as Blood, the dog. The dog's name is Blood? The dog's name is Blood. So, as I mentioned, A Boy and His Dog is originally a novel written by Harlan Ellison, and we've mentioned this story several times as we were talking about George Miller and going about his process of writing Road Warrior and moving on with the other stories, because back in 1975, they turned this into a movie, and long before then, it was a piece of literature, but it is a often referred to example of post-apocalyptic storytelling. Did George Miller use this movie as inspiration? You know, we probably mentioned that in the past. Honestly, it's been so long since the last time we actually talked about this, but (laughs) I imagine so. It probably was one of those things that inspired Terry Hayes and George Miller, specifically because of the structure of the story that we're going to see. Based on the trailer that I showed you, it is a guy out in the middle of the desert with his dog just trying to survive, wandering. So that very basic formula for a post-apocalyptic story probably had some sort of influence. And having seen that sort of theme, especially in The Road Warrior with a man and his dog, I was expecting more of the same. But watching that trailer, this is nothing like that. No, no, no. To say that Road Warrior is a remake of A Boy and His Dog is not the case. As we're going to see, and as you saw in the trailer, it's going to go off in a different direction than George Miller took. I don't know yeah. exactly what direction that is because I've seen trailers. There was a video on Good Bad Flicks on YouTube all about this movie. They went into a lot on that video. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend checking it out. So I'll post a link in the listener page. But the people who made this movie read the story. They wanted it made. They went to Harlan Ellison to have a script made. He tried working on it, but he had writer's block. And so that job was taken away from him and given to LQ Jones, who was also the director of the movie. And so it was made. And I think Ellison is known for just not liking people who adapt his work, very uh, Alan Moore-esque. But it's probably pretty 
safe to say that if we had structured our hiatus material a little differently, we probably would have watched this a lot sooner. So this is a long time coming is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, if I remember correctly, it's been on our list for quite some time. Mm -hmm. So there's not really much else to say, I think, at this point that hasn't already been said better by other people. So we're going to step away from the microphones. I'm going to play the trailer for everyone to listen to. And when we come back, we will have seen the movie. So we'll give our review of it when we get back. Magnificently inspired, Richard Eder of the New York Times says, Brilliantly grotesque, the Austin Sun, this may be the best science fiction film ever made. A boy and his dog. A film that has become a cult legend. Right now I'm hungry and I want to get laid. That's what you always say. You go find a chick and I'll hustle us up some food. I can't do good work when I'm hungry. You ain't pulling that crap on me again. And you can shove that part about how you lost the ability to hunt for food when you learned how to talk. No food, no females. After World War IV, your dog will tell you what to do. How to laugh, how to love, how and who to kill. That stupid broad. You're so funny when you're sexually frustrated. Damn it. How in the hell am I going to nail her in there? Simple. Stop shaking like a leaf and go do it. If you continue to find the food for your dog, he will find you a woman. He is the only one who can. Give him the girl. We stay. Now, you got any helpful suggestions? Yes, pull up your pants, Romeo. In the future, your dog will tell you how to survive. Or you will die. A woman can't get pregnant every once in a while. We need new blood. Horse manure. You mean you want me to knock up your broad? Lack of respect, wrong attitude, failure of authority. I'll get the dramatic catch out of your voice and tell me how she's going to carry her share of the load up here. Tell me how we're going to fight her. All right, okay, okay, just don't hang her. Harangue, not hang her. I don't care whatever the hell it is. You just knock off the crap and we can forget the whole stinking... Well, maybe we should, you simple dumb putz. What the hell's a putz? What's a putz? Is that something bad? I'll bet it is. It's something bad. You, well, I'll tell you, you better watch your stinking mouth or I'm going to kick you in the butt. If you can imagine an excuse for World War IV, you will understand a talking dog. Try to get back as quick as I can. Will you wait? For a while. Then, over the hill. I'll miss you, big. I'll really miss you. L.Q. Jones, A Boy and His Dog. A film that has become a legend by word of mouth. Rated R. And we're back. So, Julia, what are your initial reactions to watching a boy and his dog? My initial reaction is that this is an awful, awful movie. I completely agree. It is a garbage movie about garbage people. None of these characters are redeemable. No. None of them are even good. No. The only good character is the dog that doesn't talk. Right. There is a dog in this movie that does not talk. It just sits there and looks cute on a park bench. Yep. And then a couple of garbage people decide, oh, that dog's not talking. Let's murder it. Yep. This movie is full of 
terrible characters. It is doing terrible things. And there are no lessons to be learned. Mm -mm. There are no morals or truths or anything. Or character development. Nope. No character development. No arcs at all. What's the point in this movie? Why did we just spend an hour and a half watching it? I have no idea. This might be the first time for a hiatus movie that I truly feel like our time has been wasted. I completely agree with you. This narrative that has been presented to us, it doesn't present a story where anything is different from point A to point B. The status quo does not change. No one learns anything or changes anything. I just don't understand it. And I'm rather upset that a movie with such a distinct style to it that seems to have inspired so many better pieces of media just turned out to be so disappointing. Right. It's easy to say that, oh, in the post-apocalypse, you may be hard-pressed to find good people anymore. The circumstances of having gone through two more world wars than us, one of which lasted 33 years from 1950 to 1983. Something like that. If I remember the exposition correctly. And then going through World War Four, which lasted five days, just long enough to drop all the bombs in creation, it changes society. And I'm okay with that idea. But as we see in other post-apocalyptic movies, especially the Mad Max series, is that apocalypse changes people, but it doesn't change everybody into bad people. Right. There are still folks out there that remember what it was like before the world ended. And even when they don't remember what the world was like, we haven't talked about Fury Road yet. We're going to after hiatus is over. We're going to find Nux, who was born into this post-apocalyptic world, and he over the course of that movie is going to learn to be a better person. He is going to change in some way. The main character of this movie is the exact same person at the end as he is at the beginning. There is zero point to this narrative. And I know I'm starting to sound like a broken record when I say that, but it doesn't make it any less true. This movie is a broken record of garbage people doing garbage things. Yeah. And it's not even that well executed. Technically speaking, in my opinion, I do not feel like this movie is well executed. No, I had a real issue with the pacing. Mm -hmm. I think if they had fixed the pacing, it could have been a better movie. The movie was about the wrong thing. The movie was about a boy and his dog. First of all, the boy and his dog spent a decent part of this movie separated from each other, mm -hmm. which felt weird. Like a third of the movie, the last third of the movie, the dog is gone. If the narrative had spent more time on this bizarre underground society, they were interesting. They were bad people, but it was an interesting society. There was so much going on there that we just aren't privy to. And I guess from one angle, you could say, well, you know, the main character, he doesn't know about any of this. So why would we know about it, any of this or anything like that? But still, I would much rather have spent the first third of the movie getting to know Vic and his dog and his encounter with Quilla. I would have much rather seen the movie as one third getting to know Vic and how the world works and meeting up with Quilla. Quilla June. And two thirds of Vic dealing with the underground. Mm -hmm. I think that would have been a much better movie. Throw in some people in there who are not garbage and it would have been a much better movie. There's just so little that happens on the surface. And then once they get underground, everything is just railroading one direction or the other. Things are happening behind the scenes that we're not privy to. And it just completely messes with the flow 
of everything. It feels very disjointed. So we might as well start at the beginning of yeah. this summary here and just go bit by bit because per usual I have, let's see, one, two, three, three pages of notes about this hour and a half long movie trying to keep track of what's going on. So we might as well start at the beginning. You press play on this movie and it's just a bunch of black screens until you get a series of ugh, feels like a dozen different large explosions, one right after another with these multicolored filters all over them. So they're all different colors and it's just loud explosions. I really liked this opener. You seem like you didn't, but I did. I found it rather startling. I feel like it came out of nowhere. I was adjusting the volume on the TV, trying to figure out, okay, how loud is this movie going to be? And it started off with possibly the loudest thing it could have started off with. I liked it because not only did you have the intermittent explosion noises, but in the background, there was a din the whole time. Mm -hmm. That's what that kind of war would sound like. With bombs falling all around you, it would be noisy. It would be confusing. Yeah. It would be flashes of light, and then you can't see anything. That's exactly what it would feel like to actually be in a nuclear apocalypse. So I thought it was perfect. I thought it was much more setting the scene for, hey, this is post-apocalyptic, than the Mad Max Fury Road opener that was just like, yeah, stuff happened. It looked like this old timey footage. <laughs> Couple of bombs, maybe. I can't remember exactly how many they used, but it wasn't the overwhelming nuclear apocalypse level opener that we got here. In this movie, we knew what was going on. We didn't need to be told, although they told us anyways, that this was post-apocalyptic. World War Four. Yes. I love how the first text you get, they're talking about World War Four, and I'm, of course, jumping right to, well, what happened to three? Did we skip from two straight to four? But no, they explain it later on where three fell in that as Vic and Blood are having a bit of a history lesson between the two of them. It's in the opening text that we get a little note that it is 2024 AD. So let's see, Six 11 years. years from now? Well, it's 2018. Oh, that's right. It's 2018. So yeah, six years from now. <laughs> You were right. <laughs> For some reason, I thought it was 2013. That's a really weird year confusion. You know what it is? I was looking down at the calendar in the corner of the laptop there, and the day we're recording this is the 13th. Oh, okay. So that's probably where I got it. But okay. that's neither that's here nor there. Yeah, six years from now, the occurrence of World War Four takes place think well before 2024 like it's been the apocalypse for a while yes but i don't Ugh. remember exactly when it started they said they said when the bombs fell it was like 2006 or something like that i remember hearing 2006 i think that was supposed to be when vic was born yeah that might be it's one of those details where us only watching this movie once like we missed out on it but. We did. If we were going through this movie minute by minute, first of all, I'd quit. Second of all, we would know these things. My gosh, this movie would be intolerable minute by minute. It really would. It would. The format doesn't work with every movie, and this is one of those movies. Mm -hmm. It would not work. Yeah. For one thing, the very first scene we get, sure, the violence is happening off screen, but we're introduced to our title character as he's tracking closer and closer to an off screen rape and murder. Yeah. And it's implied that this isn't just one man raping one woman it's several men raping a woman and then murdering her when they're done with her and Vic's response is well that's a shame 
we could have gotten two or three more uses out of her. Yeah. That was the moment I knew I was going to hate this movie. That's absolutely fair. If there's one thing that I cannot stand, it's characters who don't see other people as human beings. It's characters who only see other people as commodities. That's one reason I've never been able to get behind a Morton Joe. Well... Yeah. The difference is that you're not supposed to be able to get behind Morton Joe. Oh, yes, there are people who love Morton Joe, and I do not understand it. Yeah, because they're not paying attention to his actual personality in his cult of personality. They're looking only at his physical attire. At his iconography? Yes. Yeah. Well, Vic does not have a lot of worthwhile iconography, so there's not a whole lot to latch onto with him. In fact, there is zero to latch onto. The one standout thing about Vic is that he is able to telepathically communicate with his dog, Blood. And they have this little back-and-forth relationship where Vic has a certain personality and Blood has another personality, and they stick together because they help each other survive, basically. Which is an interesting premise... It's mishandled. There seems to be no affection between the two. They genuinely don't seem to like each other. They're constantly bickering. Yeah. And I can get behind a little bit of bickering, maybe some playful bickering, but at the end of the day, they love each other? I don't know. Yeah, you don't get any of that until the very end of the movie. So Blood, when he's frustrated with Vic, calls him Albert, which is never explained. I think Albert is his real name. And Vic just hates being called by his real name. Yeah, so Vic may be just a purely a chosen name, or it may be his middle name. That works. Vic, in turn, when he's frustrated with blood, at least at one point calls him dog meat, which is something that is very iconic to people who are fans of the Fallout series. Most of the time, though, when Vic is frustrated with blood, he just threatens physical violence. Yeah, he does. Like, kick you in the butt. That's yeah. like his favorite thing. Yeah, he's got this fascination with kicking blood in the hindquarters. Mm-hmm. He never actually does it, though, does he? No, never does. I'm kind of surprised. I mean, this movie doesn't really shy away from taboo violence. Oh, believe me, we do see Vic kill a dog in this movie. Yes, we see dog fighting. We see a dog kill a human. We see a human kill a dog. Mm -hmm. We see... Mm, never mind. We don't want to talk about that other instance of dog murder because A, it's off screen, and B, we don't want to give away the, the matter ending. in which it happens just yet. That's a bit of a surprise that we got in uh, the underground, but that's a while to go. As I mentioned, this first scene is Vic and Blood. They are tracking a woman because Blood has the ability to track women. He's got some sort of Lady Dar or something like that. It this seems to be, it's really not made clear what the deal is with their relationship. If it's unique, I don't think it's unique. We see one other dog that appears to have the same tracking skills and communication skills with a human or a group of humans. So it doesn't seem to be common, but it doesn't seem to be unique. Yeah, like there's a, another point later on in the movie where you have two other male characters that are trying to interrogate a dog. Expecting so the dog to respond. Yeah. Now, did that dog, was he capable? of responding and chose not to or was he just a dog i'm starting to think that just in this world all men can telepathically communicate with all dogs which you know is what? incredibly weird you know what that makes sense because who's the writer of the short story the harlan, novella harlan ellison yeah well harlan ellison clearly hates women that seems so, very likely of course dogs don't talk to women but can hunt women Mm -hmm. so that men can rape and murder women. There was one glimmer of hope. I had one small glimmer of hope when it turned out that Quilla was ambitious. Right. 
I'm like, oh, she's going to redeem herself as a strong female character. Nope, not even a little bit. So I pulled up Harlan Ellison's Wikipedia page and I clicked over to his personal life and death section. I'm Elli guessing he was married several times. Ellison was married five times. Yep. Each relationship ended within a few years. Yep, because he hates women. He wrote a short story entitled The Wife Factory. So, Are you kidding me? So just Are another example. Are you kidding me? Who thought it was a good idea to turn that story into a movie? Men in the 70s. That's Pretty much. Who. Okay, here, here's one. In 1976, he married Lori Horowitz. He was 41. She was 19. Oh, come on. How many children did he have? In that marriage, they were divorced after eight months. Let me scroll up to the top of his page and see if see some more information about here. It doesn't list in the short blurb how many uh, children he has. But aside from A Boy and His Dog, he also wrote the short story, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, which is another science fiction post-apocalyptic thing, which actually got turned into a point-and-click adventure video game. And that one in particular is super messed up. I watched a Let's Play of that game before, and it is five different scenarios of people following a post-apocalypse who have been captured by a supercomputer and imprisoned and made immortal so that the computer can torture those people based on their personal traumas that they've experienced in their life. I'm okay with messed up stories. I'm actually pretty okay with the messed up ending of this movie for the sake of having a messed up scene, you know? It's the complete victimization of women that makes it not okay. Yeah. So in that one story where there's five humans who were captured by a supercomputer to be tortured, as long as they weren't all women, I'm okay with that. But no, it's just the taking normal people and turning them into com commodities, I just, it doesn't sit well with me. No. At all. So... Following Vic's discovery of the murdered woman, he goes up topside and we get to see different examples of people existing out in the wasteland. They've formed little camps, they form little raiding parties, and then we get a sort of history lesson between Vic and Blood where they explain that you know, World War III was pretty much a war between the East and the West. Pretty much the Cold War, but an actual ground war. Yeah, they call it hot and cold. And then we learn that the film takes place in the American Southwest, somewhere around, I think, Phoenix. Yeah. I think it is. And as we go on, we discover that as we're walking through this desert, all of civilization is just buried a few feet below the sand. It is. So I think when they were talking about Phoenix, I think they are on top of Phoenix. Yeah. I think so. Blood, I guess, heard from a police dog or something like that, because the dogs can talk to each other. It makes perfect sense to me, at least. It's the one thing that makes the most sense in this movie, <laughs> that dogs can talk to each other. But Blood wants to go to a place called Over the Hill, where everything's wonderful. They've got farms, and they've got water, and they've got food, and society, and all this other stuff. Vic doesn't really believe in Over the Hill, but he wants to stick with Blood, and so he keeps promising to entertain this idea of one day finding over the hill. It would have been interesting to see that explored a little. I'm actually curious if over the hill is real. Mm -hmm. And by over the hill, I'm sure they mean over the mountains that rim this valley that they're in. Yeah. That's a common trait of the American Southwest is you get these vast desert valleys surrounded by mountains. 
So yeah, you cross the mountains, you go into a different biome. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure if they headed north, things would be very different. Mm -hmm. It's funny, the idea of having a character in a post-apocalyptic movie whose main motivation is to go somewhere just better because it's exactly what we see in Road Warrior. It's exactly what we see in Thunderdome. It's exactly what we see in Fury Road. Everybody's always trying to go somewhere better. And Blood's main motivation is to go over the hill and find somewhere nicer. He wants to go to the Green Place or Tomorrow Morrowland or Sunshine Coast, basically. Yeah, and comparing that desire to the desires throughout the Mad Max series, I think it kind of fits right in because Blood never gets to go. Mm -hmm. And in the Mad Max series, not everybody gets their way. Really, the only ones that it really worked out great for was Road Warrior. Mm -hmm. They went to the Sunshine Coast and formed a great northern tribe and were relatively successful. Although you could argue that the kids at the end of Thunderdome also get somewhat of a good ending. Yeah, They make I guess it to so. Sydney. They get to their Tomorrow Morrowland. Yeah, but it's not, I don't know. It's not the same. It's not the same. It's still a depressing <laughs> ending. Vic is not interested in going over the hill because Vic is only concerned with one thing and one thing only and that is finding a woman so that he can have sex with said woman yes that is his sole motivation throughout the entirety of this film it does not make him in any way likable as a protagonist no it really doesn't as we were watching the first two-thirds of this movie i was thinking the movie really should be called a boy and his dick because mm. that's all vic is interested in he'd rather get laid than eat Mm -hmm. And it's Blood who is constantly like, I'm hungry, you need to find food. And Vic is putting up a front like, oh, well, I'm you're hungry, I want to find a woman. Blood's like, I'm not going to help you find a woman until you find food. It's like they're two parts of a single personality. <laughs> yeah, even combined, they're not at all a good or interesting person. Blood's insistence on finding food, you would think it would come across as more trying to make sure Vic stays alive. It really doesn't. Mm -mm. It still comes across as selfish and a bit nasty, which there's no reason for it to come across that way. It's food. If neither of them work to find food, they are going to die. But blood still makes it sound selfish. As we're walking around, we eventually find a scene where a bunch of people are dragging this cart and there is one particular leader who has this funny hat and he's mushing them along. And as we're watching these people, they dig a little hole, drop some dynamite in, blow some dirt out of the way, and they dig down, find food, and the whole time Vic is there with blood and he's just watching this. And the reason it's important that we're seeing these people do things is because Vic is going to steal food from them. First of all, this takes place out on a flat. Mm-hmm of some kind, a dry riverbed or a dry lake bed type of thing. There is no shelter. There's nowhere to hide. Everybody can see everything. So you have three parties out on this lake bed. You've got the diggers doing their thing. Then you've got Vic and Blood who are crouched and laying on the ground just watching waiting for an opportunity mm -hmm. then you have these three mysterious characters that we only see their feet and their shoes are covered with booties to keep them clean which makes a lot more sense later on in the movie but for now this is the first time we've seen these mysterious people who are watching vic and watching how he behaves with the group of diggers the movie was filmed near Coyote Dry Lake in the Mojave Desert. All right. Just as a little background for where they did it. So these figures that are watching Vic, it's not explained right out who they are. And it's strange that no one actually ever sees them standing out there. Yeah. For all to see. It does seem like most people just kind of mind their own business. 
I guess. Even if there are other people around who may be threatening, nobody really seems to care. Yeah, it's especially weird when Vic swoops in, steals the food. The guy who's in charge of that person-drawn cart, he just lets him go. He's impressed with his tenacity. Yeah. With his daring. That he had enough nerve and enough gumption to steal food. Mm-hmm. Like, well, you, you stole it. You deserve to keep it. Okay. Sure. He was delighted when Vic stole the food. So these figures say that they're going to, what did they say, release the cheese or something like that? Yes. They want to bait him. And so Vic and Blood, they eat their fill. And then I don't remember if it's Vic or Blood who suggested, I think it's Vic who suggested that they could probably go for some popcorn. Oh, no, it's Blood. It's Blood who wants oh, the yeah. popcorn? Oh, yeah. Blood is so all about this popcorn. Wants popcorn so bad. And so they go to this, I called it a settlement, but it's essentially a little fortified ring, which is a combination pornographic theater slash brothel. There's at least one woman in that settlement and a line of guys outside the area where she is, and she takes a can of food, and she brings a guy down in there. So yep. this is a brothel slash pornographic theater, and Vic is just hanging out in there. He actually has to pay for entry for himself and for blood. That kind of tells me that it's generally accepted that dogs are sentient, communicative beings who are actually watching the movie, because Vic has to pay for blood's entry. Once they get inside, Vic says that he's not going to buy blood popcorn, and that upsets blood. And as we're watching the scene which goes on way too long it really does they this show really could have been cut they show way too much of these little what are they called like stag films or something like that just extremely low quality poorly produced scratchy looking old films mm -hmm. that are just sex movies they are but not even like good ones yeah you don't really actually get to see anything like poorly made and apparently it since this is the apocalypse that's the only kind they have not that i'm saying i want a better quality pornographic movie shown in a film that i'm watching it's just either show it or don't i would have been so much more satisfied if they cut out 90 percent of just pointing the camera at the projection screen. Like, I think we didn't even need to see it at all. Yeah. Some cleverly edited sound effects would have been fine and we would have known exactly what was going yeah. on in this place. You don't need to keep showing us exactly what they're watching. We get it. It's a porno theater in the apocalypse. Move along. Not even a good one. I think it wasn't even good porn. I think my desire for them to move along, get the story moving, trumped anything that was being shown on screen. Absolutely. The main thing in this settlement is Blood pulls Vic aside and says, there's a woman in here somewhere. And I was thinking, well, duh. Yeah, she's running the brothel. Yeah, we already saw her. She is the brothel. And there may be more than one woman downstairs. Like, of course there's a woman here. But apparently there is one in disguise wearing a heavy coat and a knit hat and stuff like that. There is a fight that breaks out in the theater for no reason at all. Nope, no reason. And eventually, after way too long, we see this person who is dressed as a man but has been clearly, identified as a woman. She gets she, up and walks out. She's clearly a woman. So Vic collects blood, collects his things, buys blood a handful of popcorn. So blood does get his popcorn in the end. And they start following her. 
and they track her to an underground building. And it's here that we get the first mention of something called a screamer. Which is never really explained. We know that they glow green, Mm -hmm. that if they touch you, you're dead. So the assumption is that they are super duper radioactive. But how are they alive if they're super duper radioactive? They kind of remind me of the ghouls from Fallout. Yeah, There are glowing ghouls in Fallout that are just irradiated human bodies that have gone feral because their brains have rotted away. I think they call them screamers because all they have the cognitive ability to do is scream, and they glow bright green, so that's another, I guess, direct connection to the Fallout series. Here on the Wikipedia page for the movie, under reception, they mention that the film was not commercially successful at the time of its release. Shocker, I know. It has, however, developed a cult following, because of course it would, and has inspired the video game Fallout on many levels. But underground communities of survivors and glowing mutants, it all just makes sense that one would flow into the other. Personally, I think that it has gained a following after the fact, because now people can watch it in their own homes in private, where they don't have to admit to anyone else that they're a garbage human being. So as they go down through this hole in the top of the building, it's revealed that this is a gymnasium of some sort, and it's full of beds. And so there must have been some sort of, I guess, shelter? Yeah, I took it to be a high school that was used as a fallout shelter. And as Vic is descending down into this place, he starts to hear this music. Someone is humming or singing to themselves. And so as he gets to this busted up door, he spies through it this young woman who is completely naked. She is changing out of her wasteland clothes and into her regular clothes. So he sits there drooling over her. Okay, so she's in her wasteland clothes. Is she not wearing her own underwear and bra when she's in her wasteland clothes? I guess not. Like, we don't know at this point that she is specifically baiting Vic along. Right. Like, we're going to learn that over the course of the movie, that this is her plan 100%. Vic still believes that this is him just tracking a woman so that he can trap her and rape her. Yep, and that's what he proceeds to do. Yeah, pretty much. He has a long rifle and a revolver, and he puts the long rifle to the side, and he pulls out his revolver, rips open the door, rushes in, and holds her at gunpoint, and explains to her that if she doesn't stay quiet and do what he says... He's going to shoot her in the leg if she tries to run and then continue to rape her anyway. So it's going to be an unpleasant situation for her, so she might as well just cooperate in order for it not to be worse. Which, you know, exactly what you want to see out of your protagonist. I just, I I, kind of just have no words for this scene. He never questions what he's doing. He never feels any remorse or thinks, hey, maybe I shouldn't do this. Nope, it never occurs to him that what he's doing might be wrong. He mentioned a few minutes prior to this scene that it had been six weeks since he's had sex. Which means he raped somebody six weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And probably only a matter of weeks prior to that. He raped somebody. He is a serial rapist. And he's totally fine with that. Mm -hmm. Sees nothing wrong with it whatsoever. While this young woman, who we learn is named Quilla. Quilla June is her name. But she starts to try and conversate with Vic and he's initially not having it but he starts to soften a bit and she asks him for his name he eventually asks her her name and he doesn't actually go through with the rape because blood shows up to inform him that they've been followed by a band of other wastelanders and they are about to be attacked by like 20 or so people Mm -hmm. now Quilla cannot talk to blood she tries and blood hates her 
Does he hate her because she's a woman? Or does he hate her because he has like a sixth sense and he knows that there's something wrong? I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah. I think Blood is looking at the situation knowing that other dogs can just track women and that she'd be a beacon drawing other people to them. So this whole attitude about women that the society has is kind of the dog's fault because... Women are seemingly rare, so they're very desirable, but they're also beacons for other people who desire them. So a man and a woman who actually want to be together, who want to be a pair. Have a target on themselves. Yeah, all the time. So you you can't really do that. Because this wasteland is just full of rapists. Yeah, and it's kind of the dog's fault. The men are still at fault. A rapist is a rapist, and there's nobody can be blamed for that but them. But the dogs are making it worse. Vic and Blood work together to kill several of these guys that are trying to find Quilla. Not that they're looking specifically for Quilla. They're just looking for a woman as a commodity, which, Mm -hmm. like I said, frustrates me. They are able to initially kill several of these newcomers, and apparently they've found more than one entrance in there, so it's become very tricky to take them all out. And so Vic decides that it might be a good idea to imitate the sound of a screamer in order to scare these guys. Which was very clever. It worked. I'll give it one thing. It worked until a real screamer shows up. But that's after the fight's done. During the fight, Blood kills someone by ripping their throat out and he drags their gun away. Quilla eventually gets her hands on the gun and uses it to save Vic. But Blood kills a person. Vic kills several people. Blood gets in a fight with another dog. And so there's an example of dog fighting. Yeah. That's a real fight. And Blood is very hurt at the end of that fight. He spends the rest of the movie bloodied up and limping around. And Vic has to come in, break up the dog fight, and then beat the other dog to death. Yep, absolutely. So another gold star for this main character here. Yeah. So during the fight, like you said, Quilla gets hold of a gun, uses that gun to kill one of the other raiders to save Vic. It's our first instance of her doing something of her own volition. And I totally get that. I mean, I probably wouldn't have done the same thing because you have a group of 20 to 30 rapists or one rapist. Mm -hmm. So you kind of got to pick your battles. Yeah. And Blood wanted to give her to the 20 or so other guys. Oh, yeah, he totally did. That's all they were there for was her. So why not hand her over and save your own butt? What I don't like is that once the other group of raiders had run away and things were quiet again, she ran over to Vic like they were now a pair. Mm -hmm. No, you're supposed to run away now. Right. Under normal circumstances, this is where you try to get away. You have a gun. Shoot him. He wants to rape you. We get to see her acting on her own accord, but then we also get the implication that something is not normal in this relationship that is starting to form. So as I mentioned, another screamer shows up, and so Vic takes Quilla and Blood, and they retreat further into the building, and they eventually find a hollowed-out boiler, an old heating unit, that they're able to climb inside and use as shelter. And it's, of course, conveniently lined with mattresses. Mm -hmm. Someone else has clearly had the idea to shove mattresses in here and hide in it before, but it's in this instance where Quilla kind of flips the script on Vic and starts being very willing to copulate with him. Oh yeah, there's no more rape. Mm. Nope, she's willing. She initiates. Mm-hmm. This On is multiple her. instances. I think four times? At least three. Yeah. Blood, of course, is very disinterested. A lot of their sex is off screen. We're just looking at blood and how just 
annoyed he is that this is happening. Yeah. Again, is it because she's a woman and she's having sex with his boy? Or is it because he knows more about her than we do at this point and knows that this is a trap? I think he's annoyed with Vic because this is all that Vic thinks about. It is all that Vic thinks about. And Vic actually does say at one point when Willa says, should we go again? He makes a comment about, oh, usually it's me who has to initiate or something like that. That this is a very out of the ordinary situation for him. Right, because he's not used to women wanting to have sex. Mm -hmm. He's used to just raping them. He is a serial rapist. After one of their coital sessions, Vic is regaling Quilla with a history lesson based on what he's been told by blood and Quilla starts to get curious about how he can talk to the dog and Vic has no idea he has no answers and blood is so tired of this that he decides to get up and just go looking around elsewhere he wants to make sure that the screamers are all gone blood definitely seems to have the upper hand in their relationship I got the sense that blood does know the specifics about this whole communication thing but Vic is rather stupid yeah. So Blood explained it to him in a way that Vic could understand. They have a connection. They think in a similar way. Yeah. And those aren't real answers. But that's all that Vic knows. And that's what he tells Cruella. Quilla. Quilla. Thank you. I'm never going to fix it now. In her head, it's done. It's Her name is Cruella. So it's here in this conversation that Quilla first brings up the idea of them going to a place called Down Under, which is not Australia. It is literally a place underground. And of course, Vic is not interested at all. No, this was a little, I guess, confusing because there had been no talk prior Mm -hmm. of the concept of Down Under. It would have been cool if... We maybe had overheard someone in the theater because there were lots of calm, not trying to kill each other people in the theater area. There could have been a conversation there where the idea of the Down Under was brought up. Yeah. Or the legend of the Down Under. You know what this talk about Down Under reminds me of? Do you remember the Joan Chen movie, Salute of the Jugger, that we did in one of the hiatuses? Yes! That had an underground city. It did. And it was established early on in the movie that that was a thing. Yeah. That people thought about. Yeah, that people wanted to go there. Mm -hmm. This... Out of the blue. Completely out of the blue. But Vic rejects the idea out of hand. Mm -hmm. I think because he's just a contrarian... He doesn't know anything about the Down Under. He wants to stay the way he is now. He doesn't want to change. That's why he doesn't want to go over the hill. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to go Down Under. Both places that have reputations, supposedly, of being better than this lake bed. That he wants to stay in this stupid lake bed. It's around this time that blood comes back, pulls Vic aside, and... Continues to try and convince Vic that Quilla, I got it right, is bad. They need to just leave her behind. They need to just go. And Vic is adamant. Like, he wants to stay around Quilla as long as he can because she is a female who will have sex with him multiple times. Consensual sex is so much better than rape. It's just better sex. Morally, of course, it's better. But physically, it's just better sex. So, of course, that's why people have been getting together for millennia is because we like having sex with each other. So you pair off. 
He's so bad. Blood just tries so hard. Leave her behind. Leave her behind. Vic says no. And so Vic eventually goes back to Sequilla and she's in the boiler and she takes this heavy flashlight and she knocks Vic out the first instant she gets. And we pretty much smash cut to him being awake. There's not even a long span of blackout time to show that he was unconscious. It's just he gets hit. We get a quick black shot and then suddenly he's awake somewhere else talking to blood yeah i was confused by this i didn't realize at first that she was gone in hindsight of course that was her plan you're being held captive although she wasn't by this person you take an opportunity to hit them over the head and knock them out you would run away It makes Mm -hmm. sense now, but at the time, it just didn't feel like that's what was supposed to happen next. The last time we saw Vic and Quilla together, they were both talking in their own way about how they were going to spend the rest of their lives together. So her knocking him out was completely out of the blue, but she's gone. And Blood pretty much tries to tell Vic that he told him so, but Quilla left behind a key card. In hindsight, she did it on purpose. Mm -hmm. I was like, how dumb are you? How is she going to get in the door if she doesn't have her key card? Maybe she had to yeah she totally had to but yeah okay fine and so vic who just knows where to find this access door another thing that didn't make any sense Mm -hmm. he walked right up to it he didn't have to like ask anybody hey have you heard of the down under you know where the door is he didn't have to be pointing in the right direction i think that would have been something nice to spend like a minute or two on they have to actually work to track her down like apparently they just all know where this door is yeah and so he goes and he uses the chip the door opens and blood is like i'm not gonna follow you down there you do this you're leaving me behind Mm mm-hmm And Vic is like, okay, will you wait for me? And Blood's like, maybe. I'll wait for a little while. Yeah. And then I'm leaving you. So. Because they don't actually like each other. Yeah. So Vic climbs down through what I think is a U.S. missile silo. That's where they filmed it, if I remember right. From watching stuff on um, Good YouTube. Netflix. Yeah. They just, it's a short montage of him just walking through hallways and corridors yeah. and up and down ladders. And Another very long sequence, it felt like. Yes, it was very long. Although, I gotta say, this is where the movie starts to get interesting and we're in the last third of the movie or so. Mm-hmm. Most Easily. of the movie should have been from this point forward. That way it could have slowed down a little. From here on out, things are a little manic. Because Vic goes through a door and he stumbles out into this area. It is a large field filled with headstones. And And there are these loudspeakers everywhere. And the sky is black. Like they are underground in some sort of weird biosphere. I don't know where all these lights are really coming from. But Vic is almost immediately grabbed by this guy that they call Michael. Yes. And he is brought to what looks like a fire station, thrown Mm -hmm. into a tub, and then scrubbed while there are just a bunch of people standing around. Yeah. And they've all got this face paint. Yep. White face paint with rosy red cheeks and smiles painted on it's mostly like lipstick like on their lips but then at the corners instead of following the normal corner of the mouth it takes a sharp upturn like a very severe forced smile but not joker like not so dramatic do you remember a video game called we happy few I recall the name, but I don't recall the visuals. So the visuals in that game, most of the characters have a face paint situation exactly like the ones here in the underground. Yeah, that does kind of ring a bell. So it's another way that this movie has influenced more modern media. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, that one, everyone is happy because they take drugs Mm -hmm. and whatnot. Here, everyone is happy because they'll die if they're not. Right. They'll get their face crushed by Michael. 
The montage of things that we see as Vic arrives in the underground is so, as you said, manic. Yep. There's a marching band. There are people at a picnic. There are folks gathered in a chapel doing all of this bureaucratic stuff. There's no real sense of how things are laid out and how things work. I don't understand what's going on. The visuals reminded me a lot of a dystopian version of The Music Man. Very classic Americana. It's hard to pinpoint a time period because I think they grab from different time periods. It's sort of American Gothic. Yes, it is. There was something about it that felt very 50s. But the stylings were, like the the fashion was older than that. More Music Man-esque. So apparently, this underground place is called Topeka, and it's named after the ruins of the city it lies beneath. So apparently, in the context of the story, they're underneath the Midwest, the Kansas area. I'm okay with that, except for the fact that we weren't shown traversing that much space yeah did we start off in the southwest or have we always been in kansas it's not very well explained i think we started out in phoenix i think that vic to get to the down under traveled from phoenix to topeka yeah and that's where he found the door because that would mean that quilla had to go from topeka over to phoenix yes that seems like an awful long way just to find a guy well they seem to go to some trouble to find the right guy yeah I don't know why he constitutes the right guy, but I believe them when they say we're above Phoenix and we're below Topeka. Yeah, I I don't know what's going on with But I think this. that should have been made a little clearer. Yeah. So it's revealed slowly over the course of this situation that there is a group that controls Topeka and they are called the committee. And the leader of the committee is a guy named Lou Craddock. And he works together with another woman, I think her name is Miss Smith, and then another doctor. And they make up the ruling triumvirate. And the more time we spend here in the underground, it seems that anyone who is caught being civilly disobedient or questioning authority gets sent to the farm which means that they are immediately killed but it's a nice way to dress up the idea mm -hmm. oh yeah they where did they go oh they went to the farm oh what happened to them at the farm oh they got killed by uh farming equipment oh that's so tragic we're never gonna see them again yeah there's a couple that's brought before the committee and they've been accused of just being a bad attitude yeah bad attitude civil disobedience questioning authority or something like that and so they say okay we'll send them to the farm What's the story on these guys? Oh, heart attacks. Whatever. They're just very nonchalant about it. Mm-hmm. It's very unsettling. It is very unsettling. And that's exactly how we're supposed to feel. This facade of the community with literally the painted on faces mm -hmm. and the harsh punishment. And so into this scene comes Quilla and she is dressed... As a member of Topeka, she's got her face painted on, and she reports to Lou Craddock, who I guess is her father? I'm not sure. I'm not really sure. The Wikipedia says that it's her father, but I didn't get that sense. She calls him Mr. Craddock. Basically- she sits on his lap in a very creepy way. Yeah, she says that she drew Vic in, she got him to the underground, and so now she should get a place on the committee. And Craddock says no. Yeah, he blows her off. Yeah. And then after she is- sent away, he continues to have a conversation about Quilla with the doctor and Mrs. Smith, I believe her name is. And basically they decide if they can't squash her ambitions by marrying her off, they'll send her to the farm. And of course, we follow Quilla outside and she's complaining to a compatriot of hers, some guy named Gary or something like that, that 
She wants to be on the committee. She wants to run Topeka. She has ambition. She is a character that wants to change her situation. This is where I started getting hopeful to redeem her character from being a wishy-washy victim into being someone who took control of her own destiny. It does not take long for her to disappoint us. Yeah, she reveals that she went to the surface to bait Vic into the underground specifically because she was promised a reward and at this point they're gonna go back on that and she is not happy and so she talks about how she's gonna smile and curtsy and be whoever she needs to suck up to she'll suck up to so that she can work her way up while all of this is going on Vic is being dragged through the underground. At one point, he stumbles upon a dog sitting on a park bench, and I think he tries to talk to the dog or something like that. he assumes that the dog can talk, so he tries to converse. And the dog says nothing. I think it's just a dog. Yeah. And so as they are shuffled along, the dog is taken with, and the dog is brought before the committee, and they try to interrogate the dog. Yeah, what did you and Vic talk about? And the dog is silent. Nothing. He's... He's just a dog, I think. And so they decide to send it to the farm, and he's taken away. It's at this point, after all of this weirdness has gone on, that Vic is brought before the committee, and they explain to him that they need to diversify their gene pool, and so he has been brought in specifically as a stud to inseminate their women. And so Vic thinks this is a great idea. He thinks he's just going to have sex all the time, and he's got to impregnate all these women, but no, they are going to tie him down to a hospital bed, hooked up to, let's see, what is the... uh... Is there a word for that kind of machine? All right, uh, this is what the Wikipedia says. He is told that Topeka meets its need for exogamous reproduction by electroejaculation and artificial insemination. So he is hooked up to essentially a milking machine. Yep. And as he's tied to a hospital bed with tape over his mouth, women are brought in one by one to be married to him. And then I guess they're going to go on to receive his seed at some point. The plan is for him to impregnate 35 women and then be sent to the farm. I got a kick out of the fact that they were marrying the women to him because in this ultra pious but not really pious society, you must be married to the father of your child. Mm -hmm. This is complete Americana style social structure. It is to make another fallout reference this whole john henry eden situation where it's all god and country bring everything back to the good old days of when things were simple very rockwellian you know the type of america that never really existed for everybody it only existed for a very small slice of people and so they're going through this because it is their tradition it is what the as craddock says the elders have laid forth for them yeah so bringing in one sperm donor to impregnate 35 different women, that's not diversifying the gene pool. Well, if you so, bring in a different sperm donor every time you do this. Right, but they made it sound like they don't do it very often. So now you have 35 half-siblings, and mm-hmm. you have to make sure that they do not get together. Oh, I am pretty sure the committee keeps a very close watch on who is related to who. They are extremely bureaucratic. Vic does not suffer this uh, 
punishment for very long because Quilla shows up with a crowbar hidden inside of a bouquet. And she uses that to knock out a bunch of people and free Vic. So now her game plan is to use Vic, who is more adept at violence than any of her cohorts or herself, to kill the committee. That's mm-hmm. her current plan. Now, saying that's her current plan is kind of important because her plan changes about every five seconds. Mm-hmm. Basically, she busts Vic out. They go to the main office. He gets his gun, and then she's like, great, you've got your guns. Now let's kill the committee. And Vic is like, like no. I'm going home. Yeah, I'm going to leave. And so she is following him, trailing behind him, trying to get him to stop, turn around, and kill these people that she wants killed. Yep. And he's not doing it. And it's a great visual. I do really appreciate the visual. She's wearing a wedding dress. Mm -hmm. And as she's running around, she's becoming more and more disheveled. And bits of her dress are tearing and flailing as she's running. And there's lots of profile shots because there's some very harsh lighting in this underground biodome. Mm-hmm. So there's some really great shots of her dress. But her plan is going out the window, and they don't leave immediately. They stop at one point, and they hide behind something, because the committee Something's comes out, happening. and the committee starts making this proclamation. They start listing off all of Quilla's cohorts, and announce, you know, so-and-so for questioning authority and civil disobedience whatnot is going to the farm and the main enforcer this guy named michael starts going around and grabbing these people by the face and i'm assuming breaking their necks after trying to crush their heads um i think he crushes and then twists i'm not quite sure i'm not sure i mean he does it with one hand so it's unclear exactly Mm -hmm. what they are dying of but a crushing of some kind yeah Three cohorts are killed, and then Michael starts going after Vic and Quilla. And Vic, I think, feel like he uses up all of his ammunition trying to kill Michael, but no matter how many times he shoots him, he just keeps coming. It's now clear to us that Michael is not human. Mm-hmm. Prior to this, I thought Michael was just... Just blaster? Yes, that he was a blaster type. But now it's clear that he's not human. Mm -hmm. And eventually, Vic shoots Michael in such a way that he falls down and sparks erupt from his back. And we get this little aside from the committee where they say, activate another Michael and make sure he doesn't always wear that stupid grin on his face. Throughout all of this climactic chase, Quilla is trying to convince Vic that she loves him and that that is a motivation for him to stay and help her. She loves him and he loves her and all of the, you know, remember what it was back in the boiler and all this other stuff. It's just, I didn't, I, I don't think it was ever going to work the mm. way she expected it to. No. So things quiet down. Yeah, they actually get out and they of underground. Get out, yeah. Head back up top, back to the, the lake bed. And of course, Vic's first thought once they get outside is where is blood? And he actually looks over to Quill and says, You kept me underground too long. Blood is now gone, but blood is not gone. Blood is just on the other side of the entrance. And Vic finds blood. He's lying there on the ground. He's like, oh, when was the last time you ate? And Vic's like, I don't remember. He's basically starving. He's about dead. Yeah. And it's here that we get to the end of the movie. Vic is like, we need to get blood food and medicine as soon as possible. Quilla's like, no, we need to just leave him behind. He'll only slow us down. We need to go somewhere else. And Vic is left with a decision. Choose Quilla 
or choose blood. And we fade to black with Quilla saying that whole line about you love me or something like that. And as we fade in, we see what's left of a fire pit and a roasting stick. And then Vic and Blood walk off into the distance. Mm-hmm. Blood is bandaged up in white bandages. Mm-hmm. And there are a few scraps of white cloth on the ground. And there is no Quilla. And Blood even has a little joke about how Quilla had bad judgment but good taste. Yes. Which I means... wish they hadn't done that line. We got it. Yeah. We already figured out that they ate her. Basically, Blood is like, oh, I'm surprised you didn't have any. As if cannibalism is okay in Blood's mind. And yeah, it's just Boy and his dog and they wander off into the distance. Their relationship hasn't really changed. Still the same. Vic's not a different person for what he's gone through. He was the same horrible person the entire way through. Yep, he's going to go right back to hunting women and raping them. And the movie ends on a freeze frame Mm -hmm. of them just walking away. And that's it. For how many things this movie inspired, the overall quality of it is incredibly disappointing. I do like that most of what this movie inspired was visual Mm -hmm. like motifs yes motifs and themes and settings that i know of and i'm sure they exist but they're not the type of movies that i watch and that i know of there's not a plethora of movies about hunting and raping women i'm sure thankfully are but i don't know of any they don't have the prominence that post-apocalyptic movies do. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, movies with dystopian perfect societies. So I'm just grateful that those are the things that went on to have prominence in media and not the raping. I know it might be hard, but is there something in this movie that stood out to you as your favorite thing? Yes, actually. And it's not hard. The ending. Really? Oh yeah, I kind of loved it. I kind of loved it. When they murdered and ate and... Okay, when Vic murdered Quilla and fed her to blood. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I kind of loved it because it was such a twist. Did not see it coming. Okay. I absolutely didn't see it coming. And it was such a twist. I didn't see it as carrying over the attitude of the hunting and raping women. I saw it as more personal that Vic had to choose between Quilla and blood. And he literally chose blood and he discarded Quilla to save blood's life. Mm. It was the only time in the movie that they truly showed any loyalty towards each other. And Vic's loyalty was so strong that he was willing to murder this woman who would voluntarily have sex with him for the rest of his life. Wasn't worth it to him Mm -hmm. to have this person around. He put more value on his dog than on that person. And it was twisted and messed up Mm -hmm. but the movie was twisted and messed up it's the sort of thing that you expect in a movie like this how about you was there anything that you can point to Mm. that you enjoyed Mm. i kind of like the outside shots how they made the wasteland of this post-apocalypse very desolate but it had that underground aspect to it I thought that was very interesting. I thought the idea that even though everything looks desolate, everything you could possibly need is just a few feet underfoot. And all you got to do is stop and dig and hopefully get in the right spot. It's sort of a interesting way to look at a post-apocalypse that no one really seems to be hurting for resources because the resources are there. They're just tricky to find. I think I liked that idea most of all. I agree. I like that idea as well. It brings to mind old cities like Rome. 
Mm-hmm. Rome just keeps layering on top of itself. And if you dig down, you find older buildings and older streets. And if I remember correctly, uh, what's the one? The Parthenon? Is that the one that's like in the city? I think so. Yeah. I'm not quite sure. It had to be dug down and out. So it doesn't sit at the same level as most of the street and buildings around it. It's lower down. Mm. Because that's just what happens over time. Stuff accumulates on top, on top, on top. Things get buried. Yeah. I think I also liked the action scene of Vic having to fight off the guys in the gymnasium. I found it as very interesting to watch. I kind of think I might want to say if there was one specific thing in this movie that I liked the most, it was that action sequence just because it was a little claustrophobic. It was hard to see where things were coming from and there's that one part where Vic has to be very quiet reloading because he doesn't want to give his position away so I guess I could say that's my favorite thing okay it was a great set piece Mm -hmm. it made a lot of sense to the world that had been built I really liked the peak at old civilization Mm -hmm. a place that's so familiar to most of us a high school gymnasium yeah And to see it in that condition and to see that it really is just right beneath your feet. It was very interesting. Reminds me of the Shannara Chronicles. Yeah. Where pretty much the same thing happens. It's a much longer span of time between our civilization and their civilization. Thousands of years. But they go into like a cave and they end up in high school. What was your least favorite thing in this movie? Well, okay. I don't want to go for the obvious because... That's what we've been talking about this whole time. Mm -hmm. So I think my least favorite part was the difference in pacing between up top and down under. Yeah. Up top was so slow and down under was so fast. If they had evened those out a little bit, it would have made great strides for making it a better movie. How about you? Oh, well, I'm not a big fan of Vic as a protagonist because he annoys me. And he doesn't change. I'm not a fan of Blood and Vic's relationship because they're constantly bickering. I don't like the movie theater slash brothel scene because it's too long and too slow. I don't like how we spend so much time in the underground and we're just expected to know all of these things that are happening. Nothing is really well explained at all. It's very frustrating. I don't know. It's hard for me to put my finger on one thing. I guess if I had to put my finger on one thing, it's how long and slow the movie theater scene is. And again, it's a real shame because it could have been edited down. It was an important scene to the movie and it could have been a decent scene Mm -hmm. comparatively. It could have been done so much better. Yeah. So what are your final thoughts? My final thoughts is there's no real point in recommending this movie to anybody. I suppose it does have value in seeing where a lot of our post-apocalyptic motifs have come from. I suppose in that way it could be considered part of cinema history, but not one worth watching. Yeah. You'd be just as well served watching a comprehensive review on YouTube or listening to our comprehensive review or watching a behind the scenes type review like Good Bad Flicks. Go that route. You'll get out of it as much as you can without being subjected to the movie itself. Mm -hmm. It's like how I've experienced the movie The Room. I've never actually seen the movie. I have seen reviews of the movie enough that I feel like I get it. I don't need to see the movie. Yeah. I could see someone sitting down to watch this movie as, like you said, an academic venture. As sort of a exercise in understanding where these tropes have come from. But... 
I can't imagine sitting down and watching this movie because you just feel like sitting down and watching a good movie and whatnot. Earlier today, we watched a couple of movies on Netflix just because we felt like watching good movies and we recognized them and wanted to watch them again. I can't think of a situation where I'd want to sit down and just watch a boy and his dog again. Yeah, we watched An Emperor's New Groove and Prince of Thieves, both of those being movies that are just classically enjoyable movies to watch. Mm -hmm. This will never be on that list. Not really. And I cannot imagine, I just cannot fathom this movie being on that list for anybody with any kind of taste, except tastes of hating women. It's just so all-encompassing, this whole people-as-resources thing that I just... Quilla could have been a redeeming aspect of this movie. And at the end, she was just dog food. Yes. And I think that might be what spoils this the most. It's not like Quilla goes through all of this stuff, is foiled, and then has to like move on from that. It's like, no, she is someone with ambition who tries to better herself in life. And because... She throws in her lot with the wrong people. She literally becomes dog food. Yep. It's incredibly frustrating. That's my biggest problem with this movie is it's frustrating to me personally, which I guess you could say that not all art needs to be agreeable. And I would agree that not every piece of media or art that you consume needs to justify and reinforce your own worldview. But you also need to just accept that there's just some pieces of media that I am not going to give my time to a second time around. Yeah. Makes me think about American Horror Story. Okay. The themes in those seasons, in the, the anthology seasons, all different stories, are very dark. Oh, yeah. And very twisted. But they are, enjoyable is a strong word, they are compelling in their darkness and yeah. in their twistedness. To varying degrees, there are some seasons I can't watch. There are some seasons that I enjoy very, very much. This movie does not fall into that category. It is not compelling because it's twisted. It's just twisted without that spark of drawing me to it. For me, with the exception of that last scene where Quilla is dog food. Mm -hmm. That to me is like a moment out of American Horror Story. <laughs> okay. Where it is twisted, but there is something compelling about that that draws me in. Yeah. But that's the only moment in all of its weird screwed upness that does so. I think that pretty much sums up everything we could possibly say about a boy and his dog. So keep an eye on Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone on Facebook for a sneak preview of what we will be talking about next time. That information will be forthcoming. And until then... The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. A Boy and His Dog is presented by LQJAF. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link. Join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Mad Max Minute, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>